This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic in the margin of a book. After Ross Benish left Nebraska for New York, he saw with greater clarity the rural-urban divide overtaking the national conversation. I recently spoke with Benish about his book, Rural Rebellion, in which he explores Nebraska's shifting political landscape to better understand what's plaguing America while coming to terms with his own past and present. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. In your acknowledgments, you write that this book blends several genres, including memoir, um, journalism, political science, history, and sociology. Can you describe your book, Rural Rebellion, and why you wanted to write it? Yeah, sure thing. So my book, Rural Rebellion, is using a very specific example of my life in Brainerd, Nebraska, to illustrate the broader urban-rural divide that has afflicted American politics. So for readers looking to dive into the book, you'll find that I tell a lot of stories of what it was like growing up in that small town in the rural Midwest and how that compares to where I live now in Brooklyn, New York, and how those environments have shaped my viewpoint. But then there's also that research side where I did a lot of interviews and, and read a lot of books and articles to really show how Nebraska's politics were driven further to the right because of small towns like where I grew up and how that's been the case throughout the whole Great Plains region. So um, Brainerd, Nebraska is kind of an avatar in the book to explain broader changes happening all throughout the country. And the reason I wanted to write the book is because we've become so disaffected and Uh, We can't even seem to talk to people whose opinions are different than our own, that I I wanted to write something for the people I live around now in in New York so that they could better understand places like Nebraska and not just have to rely on, you know, online message boards or, or what they see on the news for their representation of the area. You know, I was struck by a couple of things that you wrote in your introduction, and I'm, I'm quoting you, so I'm throwing your words back at you. But you said, now that I've spent over half of a decade living in New York City, I've experienced how painfully unaware both rural and urban Americans are about how the other half lives. And you also wrote, as much as I'm irritated by my home state's unquestioning loyalty to the Republican Party, I'm also frustrated by how ignorant many liberals I've met on the East Coast are about places like Nebraska. And I wanted to talk about, you know, how we can combat that ignorance, but maybe we should start at your beginning because you, you described the town where you grew up and you said there are no stoplights, movie theaters, grocery stores, parking meters, concert halls, rec centers, car dealerships, public gyms, convenience stores, or chain restaurants. The tallest structures are the Catholic church's steeple and the grain elevator showing that God and farm reign supreme here. So what do you want people to know about Brainerd, Nebraska, that, you know, well, that they're not aware of because they're not asking? Well, you know, they may be unaware of how there's a beautiful sense of community in those areas. If someone's coming from a large city or if they're more liberally minded, they may view them as, you know, just backwards or uh, overly conservative people who are stuck in the past. And I hear all sorts of accusations like that. But I think if you spent time 
in a town like Brainerd, you'd see how people there really help each other out in a beautiful way. And there's like an awesome sense of community. And the church is very responsible for that sense of community. But the church also simultaneously uh, influences its politics, of course. And um, another thing I wanted to show is how the views that some Nebraskans will have on issues is more complicated than the choices that are presented on a binary ballot. So people may vote Republican overwhelmingly in my home state, especially in the small towns like the one where I grew up in. But then if you start talking to them about issues, you'll find that they don't always align with the Republican Party on that. They may vote to increase minimum wage like the state did through a ballot initiative or to cap payday loan interest rates. They'll actually support working class people on a political issue more often than not when it's put in a nonpartisan context. And um, I think there's often this caricature that conservatives are you know, just there to lower taxes and help wealthy constituents and corporations. But I know a lot of conservatives and Republicans back home who uh, defy that if you, you know, are able to discuss an issue with them and how they feel about it and not bring the two parties into it. You know, that binary ticket is something I'm going to touch on as we get into the chapters. But before I forget, what, you know, now that you have lived in New York City for over half a decade, what do you want your hometown to know about people who live on the coasts? Well, you know, in Bernard, we really prided our work ethic. And I think that's the case in the Midwest in general. I'd like people to realize that that's not necessarily unique. Um, there's this view that people in a large city rely so much on the government and, you know, they're getting welfare and they may be lazy because of it and so on. And that's not my experience at all. I mean, I know so many workaholics here in uh, New York City that even though they may be doing office jobs and not manual labor, they're working more hours or as hard as anyone I've ever met in my whole life. So uh, hard work is seen widely across the United States. I mean, I think sometimes we devote too much of our lives and time to our employers. So that's something I notice a lot here. And uh, I'd like them to get a sense of how um, sometimes things can get a little ridiculous in uh, New York City. But overall, I think it's pretty cool to be in an area where there's so many different people, uh, whether that's ethnicity or views or um, origin or income levels even. You get a mix of people out here that you wouldn't get in, in a rural area, and sometimes it forces people to learn more. Like they, they, they have to uh, learn about what their neighbor went through because they, they haven't been there for six generations. I mean, you're just exposed to, to different ideas and people from different walks of life. And um, sometimes that can make you a, a little more empathetic. Of course, being in such a dense area where everyone lives on top of each other, there's plenty of times where things are chaotic and stressful and people are angry. But uh, in, in, in personal conversations, uh, I, I'd like the Brassians I grew up with to know that, you know, when liberals aren't just the people they see on TV who are, you know, celebrities promoting a cause or whatever, they're, they're often, you know, working class people too who are working super hard and just want to get their kids through a decent public school. Now, this book is divided into sections, into chapters, and the first one you touch on is pro-life. 
and tell me if I pronounce this wrong, but you quoted Peter Weiner, a Christian political operative who worked for Reagan and in both Bush administrations. And you quoted him as saying, there's hardly any group in American politics that is as easily won over or seduced by power as Christians. Talk to me about that. Well, you see it in uh, survey data where they ask evangelicals, you know, would you support a politician who commits immoral acts? And evangelicals used to say that they would not. And they were, uh, you know, more apt to judge a politician by their personal characteristics and what they've done in their life. Well, since Trump came along, you saw that completely reverse in a short time span. And now evangelicals are actually the most likely group to say they don't care about the misdeeds a person has done. They just want someone who will support the policies they support. And to me, that indicates that, you know, they want someone who will advocate for them on cultural issues at all costs. And I I saw this um, in the Catholic Church as well. And when you hear a lot of people advocating for um, pro-choice politicians, but then uh, conveniently overlooking how those same politicians may um, go directly against church teaching on the death penalty or on immigration, uh, it kind of you know, gives the impression that they're in it because they just want to influence the politics of the country uh, or the state or the city, where you know, whichever the candidate is running in. It, it's 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 not as much about advancing the you know good Samaritan agenda. A lot of times, it's about helping a party out. I, I saw so many Christians in Nebraska who, um, I, I just to put it bluntly, that they cared more about the Republican Party's goals than they did about their own religion's goals. You know, speaking of the Catholic Church, you wrote that the Catholic Church doesn't officially endorse candidates, but that's just semantics. Well, at least in Nebraska, I felt that was semantics. The, the Catholic Church is a huge global church, and, you know, you probably have a different experience if you're in another country or even if you're in the archdiocese of Los Angeles or New York City. But in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, we had a very, very conservative bishop who threatened many people with excommunication. And, um, you know, you, you hear a lot of sermons about the ills of a politician being pro-choice and something like John Kerry is not a real Catholic. I heard that a lot in, in church. But when a, a politician would violate another precept of the church, you, you didn't hear anything about it. So when you're when you hear how bad Obamacare is and it's all about the abortion funding part of it and you don't ever hear about what it could do for poor people by protecting them from pre-existing conditions or, or giving them free healthcare access if they qualify, it feels very tilted towards the Republican Party. And message after message, sermon after sermon, that wears on you and, and gives you the impression that you know they're rooting for one party over the other. And I'm sure there's priests who don't do that, and not everyone falls into that trap, but I never heard a pro-Democrat sermon in the Lincoln Diocese, and I've heard thousands of pro-Republican ones. Let's move on to another section, and the second chapter is is titled A Soccer Town. Can you talk to me about immigration and Schuyler, Nebraska, and that had to do a lot with Cargill expanding a meatpacking plant in the 90s? Is that right? Yeah, so you have a big, uh, you know, beef processing plant expanding on the edge of town, and they you know, cut their wages. All the meat packers have just crushed their unions over time. And they made those jobs 
something that most people who are born in the U.S. have no desire to do. So to fill them, they go and recruit foreign labor because it's cheap and because they're harder to, um, you know, it's, it's harder for foreign labor to, to unionize and organize against the, the company because they, they don't all speak the same languages and they're often move from place to place. So Skyler is a town of under 10,000 people. And for most of its history, it's been overwhelmingly white. But between the late 90s and the early 2000s, it saw a tremendous demographic change. And now if you go to Schuyler and you go to their grade school, you'll see the vast majority of children there are um, Latino or African. They're, they're coming from um, all sorts of countries to work at this plant. And I, I talked about Schuyler because it was about a half hour from Brainerd. They were in our same legislative district. A guy from Schuyler was actually our state senator when I was in high school. Uh, we played them in baseball. So it was close enough that you, know, you knew what the town was kind of like. I mean, you were familiar with it. But it wasn't so close that you interacted with people every day. So we had a lot of preconceived notions about what life was like in Schuyler. And we, when we played them in baseball, we'd say, we're, you know, we're going to play – uh, you know, a bunch of soccer kids, you know, and that was a uh, code for these are, um, you know, Mexican players. And towns like Schuyler have become a big part of our state's politics because we've had a bunch of towns throughout the state. And I'm sure this is the case in Kansas where there's, you know, beef packing centers um, out there that um, we've had this, you know, demographic change. Their ag corporation that's out there has expanded its all foreign labor and politicians have targeted them. So uh, an example of that is in 2006, uh, Nebraska had a governor's race, and our head football coach, Tom Osborne, who um, people from Kansas probably remember him for uh, <laughs> beating up on them for so many years. Uh, he, he, he was a congressman at, at that time, and he was running for governor. And as you can imagine, someone who's won three national titles in football is going to be a pretty popular guy in Nebraska. And he lost in his Republican primary because his opponent, Dave Heineman, went to the right of him on immigration. Osborne wanted to give in-state tuition to uh, Dreamers uh, who had graduated from a Nebraska high school. And the other candidate did not want to do that, and that helped him win the primary. And it just continued to be that way. Just this a uh, few months ago during the pandemic, Governor Ricketts, our current governor in Nebraska, made some statement that illegal immigrants who work at meatpacking plants in Nebraska wouldn't be eligible to receive a COVID vaccine. He then walked it back after he got a lot of criticism. But, I mean, you know, he was going out of his way, again, to bring this issue up and, and to even deny them uh, a thing that would benefit the whole public health because you want to get everyone vaccinated. So the state has gone very right on immigration. And by that, I mean the Republicans who are elected in the state have gone very right on immigration. And they've pointed to towns like Schuyler as evidence of what they're rallying against. You don't want your town to, you know, have all this change or schools will be overburdened. You have a housing shortage. You know, they say things like that. And it's helped very far right candidates emerge victorious in primaries. But, uh, you know, doing all that hasn't made life any easier for people in Schuyler or in Fremont, Nebraska, where the city council passed an ordinance that officially made it illegal to rent to undocumented laborers. So it, it, it's, it's um, kind of a paradox because Nebraska is also a state that's historically welcomed a large number of refugees. But 
the politics on immigration when you get to these statewide races tend to be um, very conservative, even to the point where they make 1990s Nebraska politicians look liberal because our governors and state senators from the 90s who were Republicans um, actually opposed things like raids and wanted to reform immigration to make it easier to obtain a pathway to citizenship if you're already here. But that's no longer the direction that the, the state's taken. And I wanted to tell that through real human beings and not just policy papers. And that's why I went to Schuyler and wrote about it. You know, before we leave this chapter, I want to talk about something that I found fascinating. And it was it was your insights into observing the way people drive in Schuyler. Can you talk to me about, a little bit about that? Yeah, well, if you are, uh, you know, in Schuyler, and this may be the same case, Kansas isn't Garden City. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so um, when you'd be at a stoplight, and there's not many people, these are small towns, they, they would drive overly cautious, like they'd wave you through. They uh, didn't even want their car to come too close to yours. And from, you know, what I heard talking to more people there is that basically they're, many of them are prohibited from getting a driver's license because they're undocumented, so they're kind of in a catch-22 situation. And if they were to get a ticket or an accident, uh, there'd be a whole legal mess awaiting people. And so, uh, you know, because they can't get a license, they can't get insurance. So driving can become risky for them. So they're so they're very cautious. Um, but, you know, you're in an area where there's not really any public transit, so you have to drive. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's tough. And, that you, you, you know, you just see there's like just little interactions like that that, that you notice um, when you're in those towns. Now, um, Chapter 3 is about health care and insurance and economic disparity, and we have a lot to unpack in this one, but health care and insurance hit kind of close to home for you, didn't it? I mean, I could read just everything that you had in a year, but I, I feel like I would be doing this, like, litany from WebMD or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't want to um, make the your listeners feel like they have to go and Google things and convince <laughs> themselves that they have more ailments than they do, but... Yeah, I've had autoimmune hepatitis and ulcerative colitis and uh, a host of other ailments springing up from those conditions and the treatments that I had to take and, um, you know, just lots of medical care that I've had to receive um, since I've been in junior high school. And uh, it's tough to pay for all that. And in the book, in, in that chapter, there's that personal element of here's all these illnesses. Here's how I've tried to pay for them. I mean, my, my family had to put up a lot of money back in the day had to pay for my treatment because uh, this is before Obamacare. So we were, you know, it was profitable for an uh, insurance company to discriminate against me because of my pre-existing conditions. So and my dad uh, has his own um, small plumbing business. So we weren't getting insurance from an employer. And whatever policy we had when I got that first disease is what we had to stick with. And the company was so crappy, it kept it went out of business and got sold, and then it got sold again. This wasn't like we had the silver plan on Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, we had some rinky-dinky thing, and uh, it became a, a financial burden. And you know, as I've gotten older and bought through various healthcare exchanges and gotten insurance from employers, I mean, I, I've experienced firsthand, you know, the benefits of government regulation on healthcare. Or for me, I know premiums rose for others, but for some of pre-existing conditions. I was allowed to get affordable insurance and keep costs more reasonable. And it's had a huge effect on my life. I mean, 
I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if all my time and money was spent chasing healthcare bills. The more journalistic side of that chapter is I tell the story of the Cornhusker kickback where Ben Nelson was the final vote for Obamacare. And uh, he got that vote on the condition that the federal government would pay for Medicaid expansion in Nebraska, which should have been viewed as a positive thing, getting the federal government to pay for something that benefits Nebraska constituents. But he was hammered hard for it, and it was tagged as the Karnaska kickback, and he was, you know, his big government. And, you know, without Ben Nelson, that we wouldn't have had Obamacare. And that's these ads ran, and they ultimately he influenced him, and he, he didn't run again. And the Democrats haven't been able to put anyone in office, really, since Nelson left. So his vote on Obamacare had a personal effect on me as I go and get insurance now. But it had a, a big effect on Nebraska politics, too, because that was the swan song of Democrats getting elected to statewide elections there. And did they, does Nebraska have Medicaid expansion? I, I... Well, yeah, now they do. In 2018, they went ahead and expanded it anyways on their own. And they, the, they it took over two years before, between the voters voting on it and it actually going into law because the governor and the attorney general delayed it. But they... They do have it now, and uh, that's kind of an, uh, a, a funny little footnote seeing how controversial it was for Nelson. But Nelson did this back in uh, you know, 2010. He made this vote. Medicaid expansion came eight years later. That was eight years of people having uh, government-provided health care through Obamacare. I mean, more people became in favor of it over time. Still, many Nebraskans hate Obamacare, especially in the rural areas, but that sentiment has change as uh, it's become a more regular part of their lives. And I think you see that with a lot of government programs. People I grew up with were very anti-tax, very anti-government. But if it was like something that was, you know, a government program put in place 100 years ago, like Social Security, they weren't against that because they were used to it. It was when there was a new government program like Obamacare at that time that you saw these forces really come up. And one other thing I'll say about that Medicaid expansion I think only like five or six counties of our 93 counties voted for it. So Oman Lincoln really wanted it. The rural areas, though, most of them still voted against it. Let's see. I wanted to talk a little bit about economic disparity, because you mentioned in the book how, you know, what you would consider middle class and lower class can be defined by where you live. And like if you're if you're in Nebraska, as long as you can put food on the table, you're considered middle class. But, yep. you know, what, you know, somebody from the East Coast might look at how we live in the center of the country and, and consider us lower class. But, you know, that's also the where you live, you know, that has an effect in terms of media coverage as well. And you wrote, I also believe that press members on the coasts, which is a flawed group I belong to and value, don't give enough consideration to how the attitudes that many people in the middle of the country have are formed in reaction to their coverage. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, just to give you an anecdotal example, when uh, CNN went to uh, my home county for, I believe, the first time ever, it was about a year after Trump got elected, they spent the whole time talking to a, a guy in army fatigues at the county fair and, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of displayed him as if that's a representative of the uh, you know, what you would find in David City, Nebraska. I'm sure that person was really eager to talk, but they kind of show those areas. It's like, here's the coal miner, 
uh, here's the crazy army person. You know, they have they have a kind of a few um, stereotypes they lean on and, and push everyone into that. So when all 70 million Trump voters are portrayed as either being, um, you know, stuck in, in some a- antiquated job or uh, misogynist or racist, you know, they often like to show the, the white nationalists, for instance, and generalize from there. It rubs people the wrong way, and, it, and it's been that way for, for, for quite a while because there's, there's a lot more nuance in a, in a group that large that, sure, those idiosyncratic character types that I mentioned do exist, but I wouldn't believe they're the majority of conservative voters, and that's how they're often portrayed. And you know, when that happens, it just leads those people to further distrust the media, and then they develop their own self-reinforcing media ecosystem. So uh, we're, we're like living in different planets now. And you also wrote, telling rural voters that they're, quote, voting against their own interest doesn't get them to reconsider their beliefs. I heard so much of that after Trump got elected when I was here in New York. It's like, well, you know, these are, uh, you know, simpletons who just voted for a Republican Party that's just going to, you know, give tax cuts to their wealthy backers. Why don't they want what's good for them? Why won't they see this? And people who say this, especially if they're in a newsroom, you know, a lot of them that I met um, had parents who are, you know, pretty well-to-do and went to uh, really prestigious universities. And uh, for them to come and say those things about the people in the middle of the country, they're not they're not going to go, oh, my gosh, I... I see things the way you put it now, and I, now, now I agree with you. I mean, Vox Media, I, this is probably about five years ago, they put out an ad that to have a distressed communities reporter, but uh, the person had to live in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure the person who got it probably had ties to the editors of Vox and, and went to an Ivy League school, or, and, uh, you know, then they can come and... Uh, you know, disparage the places that they're not even visiting. So, uh, you know, it just all gets kind of ridiculous. And the more luxury that um, liberals are, I think the less they're going to reach that audience. Because uh, the conservative that I know feel like they're not being told new information or being engaged with in a decent way. They're just kind of being lectured. And how I've been accused of this now, too. So, uh I suppose it's become a a universal merry-go-round at this point. (laughs) I do want to come back and talk about the party system because it seems like despite the sheer number of issues we're facing, you know, one is expected to swear loyalty to one party. And it's either it's black or white or right or left. And, you know, you even wrote about how a conservative wasn't quite conservative enough for his party. How is that playing out in Nebraska? Well, so we have the nation's only nonpartisan single house legislature, the unicameral. So we're a little unique, especially historically unique, in that there's supposed to be less of this. And people are supposed to build coalitions around particular issues instead of just party ideology. But over the past 20 years, we introduced term limits, which made the parties more involved because they could replace half of the body every four years and there's been a a nationwide deregulation of campaign finance which has a a local effect of seeing a significant increase in the amount of money that comes in and 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 even more important than the increase in the amount of money it's harder to track who's spending it so a big uptick in 
hidden donors. And we have a governor from a family worth billions who is very vindictive of anyone who votes against the way he wants them to vote, that he will primary someone from his own party. So even in a nonpartisan legislature, you have a moderate Republican who may vote with the governor eight out of ten times. Those two times, that wasn't good enough. He's going to go finance a primary challenger to get that person out to have a more conformist legislature that benefits his wishes so he can you know, pass the laws he wants to pass. So in this uh, supposedly nonpartisan legislature, you see more time spent fighting over filibuster rules. You see less legislation passed. You see more acrimony, more attacks coming from the floor. And we're beginning to resemble the dysfunction found in other state legislatures like your very own Kansas. <laughs> I was going to say, you wrote in just a short time, the Nebraska legislature designed for nonpartisanship had become nearly as extreme as Kansas, the poster child for right-wing experimentation. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> I was just quoting political scientists on that one. Well, with, 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 with my own uh, flavor there, of course. You know, there. You also talk about campaign finance and and what's happening. You know, on on university campuses, and I, I'm kind of speeding through these these last um, chapters. Is there anything that you want to add that I haven't asked? Any final thoughts? Going from Brighton, Nebraska, of 300 people, to New York City of 8 million people, really got a firsthand view on how your environment influences you and how people's different opinions on things can be shaped by where they live and uh we, we lose track of that when we you know just stay in our own comfort zoning and pigeonhole people that was ross benish rural rebellion published by university press of kansas thanks for joining us for marginalia if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.